Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me. I am recording this in Brooklyn, which my guest describes in his book as a place where you get farm-to-table dinners, cashmere sweaters, and watch prestige television. That guest is Mark Bergen. I used to work with him, and he has since gone on to bigger and better things. He's now at Bloomberg. He's a longtime Google reporter and has an excellent book out now called Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. It is a book I've been literally waiting for him specifically to write for years. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. I don't wear any cashmere sweaters. I felt a little Ugh. challenged by your description of Brooklyn. Yeah, sorry. I fought for the keep that line in, so <laughs> that was one, the, one of the, one of the ones I fought for. I nearly stumbled in the intro because you no longer cover Google for Bloomberg. After doing it for years and years, you did it for us at, at, at uh, Recode, uh, but you've moved on. We should get that out of the way. You're no longer the, the head of, of Google coverage. Yeah, I, I still have like one foot in, in, in YouTube world, and I'm sort of gracefully uh, stepping into a, a larger role in looking at, at uh, climate tech and energy and the, and the intersection of, of energy and big tech, uh, so, but still very much uh, keeping tabs on, on YouTube. Okay, good. If I was a professional podcaster, I would save that part for the end of the interview. But now that we've we've done yeah, the that's okay. part first, good. maybe we should start at the end of the book then. Something like that. I know why you needed to write a book about YouTube, but you tell me why you needed to write a comprehensive soup to nuts beginning till now history of YouTube. I uh, like you have been covering the sort of TikTok of these events since 2016 when the YouTube story became a content moderation and a platform story and like a Trump era culture war story. Keeping tabs on them was, was difficult in, in, in the, like the hefty news cycle. YouTube was this increasingly important part of Google's financial future and increasingly uh, important part of Google's political headaches and its, its business problems. During those few years, uh, I just I thought it was a fascinating story uh, of both the the narrative of like going back and, and the, the platform from the beginning to where we are, how we got to today. There's this also like this really interesting whiplash that the employees felt of they, you know, Google's this idealistic company about the internet. YouTube was taking on Hollywood and all the conventions and this underdog. And then within a few short years, it becomes uh, big tobacco. Uh, and I thought that was just a subject of a great story. Another you know, to be honest, the catalyzing force was I talked to someone after doing some reports about YouTube and it was like a former uh, YouTube lawyer that says, you really have to go back and understand the Viacom lawsuit to understand anything about YouTube and its its DNA. And I, I thought that was worth exploring. No one had tackled this before uh, and I gave it a shot. So Mark, I thought you were going to say the reason I had to write about YouTube is because no one has written a comprehensive YouTube book yet. And in fact, very few people write about YouTube period. It'll come up periodically um, in the last few years when there's a scandal and there've been a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And I say this all the time on this podcast and anyone who listens, it's crazily undercovered given its size, stature, importance. Um, it's the same age as Facebook, give or take a couple months. Unlike Facebook, it remains crazily relevant. 
my kids are 12 and 14 now, and it's still, I think, the dominant way they get information. And I think that's consistent with their peers. Why do you think YouTube, you know, with some blips uh, periodically, you know, it was a fun story when it first showed up and got bought by Google for what was then a crazy number, 1.65 billion. Why do you think it is so undercovered by us and media in general? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, interesting question that I... I've now learned a lot more in the past few years. One is just structural. Like there are uh, excellent media reporters like yourself that cover YouTube when it uh, intersects with with Hollywood and the streaming wars. There are social media reporters that and that typically cover Facebook and Twitter and, and now increasingly TikTok. This is like a little bit in the weeds, but YouTube has basically been the domain of the Google reporter. And the Google reporter the past few years has been telling the alphabet story. It's like self-driving cars, right? It's antitrust. It is... The... Talk about the new things, not the thing they bought in 2005. Yeah, certainly that. Uh, also talk about the, you know, Google, when it's dragged before Congress, when Sundar's testified, the CEO of Google, it is about antitrust. It's about conservative bias. It's about all privacy. It's about the litany of, of issues that Google deals with. YouTube is tucked in. You know, we don't have clarity about it. We, we know it's sales data, it's ad sales, but we don't know the rest of its financials in the way that we know Twitter and Facebook. And I think that is a significant reason. I think the other structural reason is just the way that the platform works. Like most people, and this includes uh, members of the press and politicians, their experience with YouTube is very similar to experience with, with Google. It is a utility. It's, it's search. It is the thing I use to do a work from home workout during the pandemic to figure out how to fix my sink, uh, to, to watch an old clip of Stevie Wonder. It is not the thing that I see my uncle posting kind of crazy Trump yep. memes on, right? But there is, to be clear, there are, are, are massive audience of YouTube that are deeply dedicated, that spend time that like live in these sort of uh, really fascinating niches and, and have the fil same filter bubble problems. But I think that that's an, an, a major reason. Also, Google is just a more mature and savvier company in many ways. And I think that's how they've allotted some of this criticism. So let's fix that. Tell tell our audience of super savvy media people why they should pay more attention to YouTube. They all get that it's the world's biggest video yeah. site. But I bet if you went up and asked them a question about what's on your mind about video, they would say TikTok right now. Why, yeah. why should they yeah, spend yeah. time knowing the history of, of YouTube and knowing what it does today? This is a stealing from my colleague, Lucas Shaw, which also talks about, he describes YouTube as like the world's biggest music service that no one talks about. It's probably like the biggest podcasting service that no one talks about too. Like mm -hmm. there are these domains, uh, gaming, beauty, like there are just domains that, that YouTube has transformed in, in broader like media and culture. Kids content for sure is another like Coco Melons, like one of the top performing, uh, I think it's like one of the biggest hits on Netflix, right? It came up on YouTube and just within the past uh, seven years, really. So there are entire categories that YouTube has transformed. It, it is shaping the future of social media, like Instagram reels is looking like TikTok, but really that business model is chasing YouTube's. Everyone's sort of chasing this creator economy that YouTube's had in place since 2007, right? Some sort of system where we're going to get ad money or maybe increasingly commerce money, but we're, we're primarily going to get our businesses relying on ads and we're going to find out some way to distribute this to the creators to create, to have these incentives where they're going to keep posting and not go anywhere else instead of the twitter facebook model and tiktok model right now where you give us stuff for free and we make all the money we're uh, youtube has, has has from the get not from the get-go but almost the get-go has been sharing that money with creators 
and and social media is increasingly looking not like our friends and family, but uh, these uh, influencers and celebrities and online personalities that we may follow or algorithmically be uh, induced to to look at. Uh, and that's that's been YouTube's model almost since day one. Really, there wasn't really a there was sort of a tight knit community of of vloggers, but it's not it's not like Facebook where everyone who uses Facebook is probably posting or Twitter. It is a majority of people who are watching YouTube are just watching. They're not uploading their own videos. And a lot of people have these relationships where they kind of know, you know, the PewDiePie's and cat of the world. Like they feel like they know them in a, in a deeper way than they know, like a reality TV star. Uh, and then you're also going to have, we've seen this on Spotify, seeing it on Twitch, seeing it on TikTok, the same exact versions of what YouTube went through with its brand safety and creator problems and content moderation. I think it's like history repeating itself. Yeah, so that there is a commonality with YouTube and all the platforms that that we also spend time talking about, and, and this is, I think, the the recurring theme through your book is there's this thing that got built basically on a whim by classic sort of Silicon Valley dudes whip something up in a garage, put it together, and then from that point on, it kind of grows on its own because it's built to with input from people around the world and periodically the people who manage it, who own it, um, try to take control of it. They try to move it in different directions. There are always unforeseen, obviously things don't work out the way they think that they, then they try to recalibrate it and the thing keeps moving. And there's kind of an ongoing debate about whether or not anyone controls it. And to tell the story, you, you you bring up this, not a character, she's a person, a woman named Claire Stapleton is a recurring character in your story. I was embarrassed to know I did not know who she was, to admit that I did not know who she was because I covered it for a long time. Who is Claire Stapleton and why is she important to the story of Google, a story of YouTube? That's, I'm glad you admitted that. This is, I feel like these are these important moments where I feel like I re- sometimes have to step back and realize that most readers don't know uh, these things that I just assume everyone knows. So Claire was... This early employee, um, she's about my age. She she started at, at Google in 2007 and was sort of part of, I think she's fascinating for a variety of reasons. One is she was part of the internal comms team, which is something that like big tech companies at Google have where they have people that basically just wrote messaging inside the company. And her job was to write the like stand-up shtick that the, the Google founders did for the, the regular Friday meeting and write a lot of internal emails from and memos from, from senior execs. She shifts to YouTube starting in 2014 and becomes one of the, um, her, her early job was this like curating things for the, the marketing team. And another theme in the book that I talk about is just these alternative history of YouTube in many ways. Like it started off with a much more heavy, I will say editorial hand where you had people picking the homepage videos. And at one point they were kind of curating Arab Spring footage, right? And like every single turn, YouTube sort of operates makes a decision to go, we're actually going to do this algorithmically. That's the way to scale this for a variety of reasons. So anyway, Claire comes in and is in this role that she describes as sort of an impossible feat because she's dealing with, it's really hard to curate at 20, by 2014, YouTube was was so massive and it, uh, it was like on its way to its billion hours a day of viewing goal. She became pretty prominent in, in 2019, maybe I have my time running wrong, sorry, 2018, when um, she led the Google walkout over sexual harassment issues. Um, and that was got a lot of big press. She left the following year uh, and claimed retaliation. And I think it's just a, 
one of many, but certainly the most like interesting case of someone who had this this trajectory of like coming in and sharing Google's val- values and morals of the world, and coming out the other end being much more critical about the company. And what I found in in talking to her and in the book is is that a lot of that criticism too was her time inside YouTube. I think there are multiple places in YouTube's history where if someone makes a different decision, the platform goes a different way. And then sometimes I think, no, no, there's always going to be, it doesn't matter the particular decision they made because it was all the story of this thing like we've been talking about is this kind of lumbering, mostly automated beast that that moves on its own. But, but one of the ones um, I think about a lot is just the fact that they spent so much time at the beginning of the company trying to keep they were they were involved in content moderation from the beginning. They were people taking off beheading videos and having you know permanent PTSD from that. But they really, especially at the beginning, were spending a ton of time concerned about copyright law and not being sued out of existence like like YouTube was. And in fact, they were sued by Viacom, and then it took a long time. They ended up trouncing Viacom in that suit. Do you think that that they realized sort of the content moderations they would be having when they got to scale or was no one thinking that far ahead? No, but no one was thinking. I mean, when they got to uh, when they got to scale, I guess that's even before 2016. I do think and I made the argument in the book, actually, so uh, that there was a scrappy team even before Google. So there was an 18 month period when they were they were um, independent companies, startup and out of San Mateo. There were policy people there and, and lawyers involved that uh, it's pretty remarkable given that there was no like no guidebook and no playbook for for doing this right there was there was obviously like content moderation existed on the internet and there were problems like they were aware of, of Napster but they built this system that dealt with you know the early on porn was a big problem right um, you know copyright was clear like the founders were aware that this could have been an issue uh, there were some really amusing uh, early case studies where you know, the, the thing that won them the, the Viacom lawsuit in part was, you know, YouTube said, like, we can't just by seeing a video, we can't actually know that the copyright holder hasn't put up the video. And there was a case of um, what was like one of the earliest YouTube uh, viral hits of all time was that um, soccer video mm-hmm. that was just Joe B. Right. And so Joe, an account called Joe B puts up the video. It goes crazy viral. YouTube's like, what do we do? Right. It's a it's of a star Nike starring uh, Ronaldinho. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably like Nike. If Nike holds the copyright and someone had uploaded that video, uh, then they could be in, in, infringing on the copyright. It turns out Nike's marketing department had uploaded the video, uh, and CBS or Viacom Properties did this in multiple times, which is part of the reason why YouTube won that that case. This was, in some ways, being like very legally savvy. In some ways, it was like they were taking this risk, operating in this gray area, that ended up paying off for them. But it did like the the Viacom lawsuit. I think shaped the company in a significant way just because they became very cautious about doing editorial programs. There, there's a part of the book, like there's an early community manager, his role was to do uh, news and politics and he organized the, you remember the CNN debate, which is mm-hmm. kind of crazy to think about, like the presidential debate in 2008, having YouTubers um, ask questions to the candidates. That was one of, of several, like Steve Grove initially had this idea of doing like a YouTube style, like news and politics show uh, every week, right? And and uh, that was a lot of those things were toned down because, okay, now we're facing this this lawsuit. And so we have to look, this is the beginnings. Of we want to have less control over our programming. And even though even though there's, there's a big ideological 
strain from the get-go that that the computers and users should be programming YouTube. At various times, various people said, well, actually, we, let's put this on the homepage or let's not put that up there. I think that was the culture more of like the, forgive the term, like Web 2.0, right? It was, oh, well, we're going to, we're going to pick the, the videos that that might be more interesting to our community of users. Like there was sort of a, a less hesitation to uh, have, there was an expectation that, oh, we're, of course, we're going to be like kind of curating these, not just for content moderation reasons, but because uh, there's this, there's at that point, even there was this massive sea of videos and how like, how else are you going to give interesting videos to people? Clearly, like over years, the years, the recommendation engine became exceptionally good at like feeding you the exact kind of videos that you want, but it wasn't there at the beginning. One th- another inflection point you point out in the book, and people have pointed out before, is this shift that YouTube made under Salar Kamengar, their their second uh, CEO, to emphasize watch time instead of views. Explain what that was and, and what that meant. I think this is another uh, a, a really great example of unintended consequences because at the time, uh, and you were reporting on this a lot then, they did have a problem. Initially, their their chief metric for ranking videos and search and recommendations was just uh, views. And so you had this, was it Demand Media, right? Was like, I think the biggest yep. um, supplier of YouTube videos. And like they had this uh, eHow, right? Like they just churned out these clips. Like how to put on underwear. Yeah, there you go. Uh, one of my favorite ones was like how to get a girl to kiss you or something in middle school. You know, like, um, you know, YouTube, I think, well aware, at least uh, the YouTube producers were of the of the core YouTube audience. It was a shoddy metric uh, at this time. Like there was a point when its growth, this was before the big mobile boom, was looking like it was plateauing. Um, you know, people and the executives there around around Salar, were, this was I think a, a big inflection point where they decided like we are actually okay. We can we can we kind of knocked out these. You know, we beat all the other like web video players, but there's still television, which has four or five hours of, of Americans time every day. Like, why don't we go for the television market? And, and money. Yes, for sure. Yes. And that became the, and it's still driving force of, of YouTube's business, which is like advertisers need, like, there's a big audience here on YouTube and the spending is disproportionate to the amount of, of um, watching engagement and like sort of the audience that we have here on, on digital what I found was interesting in, in, in discovering the reporting, like there were actually many different metrics they were considering. One was, uh, this is another alternative history of YouTube, like, oh, we could maybe prioritize videos that, that get creators a uh, six-figure salary or something like that, right? And instead they go with with watch time as being the principal driver of to how long people are engaged with, with videos. And it does solve that clickbait problem to a certain extent, like the kind of videos that that YouTube didn't want to see the ones where people clicked on and immediately left. Right. So if 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 we reward you for making videos that people watch longer, then we you won't make videos that people click on and then move away from right away because it wasn't what they wanted or it, it's a fifteen second joke. So that sounds good, but right. But then there are all sorts of uh, downstream consequences there. I mean, what I was trying to get across in the book is like YouTube is sort of this media programmer by accident, right, or by by algorithms, and this was a perfect example, like. Uh, video games, beauty tutorials, vlogging, uh, these categories that exploded overnight. Uh, and, and then animation, um, you know, at the time, some of the most successful YouTubers were uh, in this weird irony of kind of like doing TikToks, right? Like they were doing um, very uh, in, like expensive, uh, relatively expensive, like lots of production quality putting into a minute long video. Uh, Mystery Guitar Man, if you remember that one. Um, and 
these creators were, were punished in some ways because they were investing so much in these shorts that were no longer rewarded as much. Uh, and what it became was that cheaper, you know, it's easier to do video game footage. You don't need a, a green screen. And it's easy to do like makeup tutorials, like these kind of videos. Things that would be um, 10 minutes long. And, right. and the good part, we would promise you will be nine minutes into it or 10 minutes yeah. into it. And, so stick and like with kids, us. kids videos effectively didn't exist before then and then exploded. We'll be right back with Mark Bergen, but first, a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard, where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code FOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. And we're back. There's a long history of, of YouTube saying, this is the new thing that we want to prioritize. And then it angers a bunch of creators. So that's one downstream effect. But a lot of folks have, have pointed to this out as have pointed that the, the emphasis on watch time has been bad for the world. What argument are they making there? Because I don't see why watch time would be worse than clicks or any other metric. You mean the the critics of, of of watch time in the in the engagement trap and mm-hmm. um yeah that were like that they sort of optimize for keeping people engaged. I mean there's there's a certainly with with children there's a there's a pretty obvious like addiction argument criticism there. I think they're like the book got across that some of the people in the company got like noticed this like we're, oh we're optimizing just just for watch time uh, and not necessarily for other like metrics of quality. Um, we're going to of course that's going to like get people that's going to get the, the sort of drama channels, the things that engage and outrage are going to get a lot of views and the things that um, the sort of the sugary type uh, videos for kids are going to get a lot more than the educational ones necessarily, right? Just because of that's just the way that a, a lot of like human behavior and, and watching works. I know one thing we haven't talked about is another around the same time, they were also like starting to push into like financing and original programming. Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, I'll beat you to it. Uh, which and and then Robert Kinsel just um, is it this week? I guess uh, just was, just this uh, week. Robert Kinsel. He just took my next question. The long he was there for he was there for a dozen years. Uh, came from Netflix to YouTube. And who is Robert Kinsel? What did he try to do? And why was he important to YouTube? Yeah, uh, Robert Kinsel was um, YouTube's chief business officer uh, starting in I think twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. But but he kind of came out originally as their like Hollywood uh, liaison, and um, they didn't have anyone. You know, someone at YouTube described it to me. They would like fly down to LA, um, have these meetings, and then fly back up, and uh, and nothing would happen from it. Totally different cultures, right? There was just no one there who spoke Hollywood. and Yes, and, and Robert it, spoke Hollywood. He spoke Hollywood. It's funny because he's a Czech immigrant, heavy accent. Uh, it kind of has some Arnold Schwarzenegger vibes. Um, <laughs> no, uh, put that and, in the book. And the idea that he was like 
Google's idea of a smooth talking Hollywood guy is kind of funny, it's, but by their standards, he was. Yes, agreed. And I think I, I guess I brought up originals in that point because so yeah, so briefly, like Robert's first uh, program was to, to do a initial like to do funded channels uh, in 2011, which was controversial because uh, the founders, particularly Chad Hurley, like the first CEO of YouTube, was very much against like we don't want to give any uh, YouTube user. Uh, any like leg up on another and and funding them. This was YouTube handing out hundreds of millions right. of dollars yes. to YouTube produ- and not just anyone, right? It wasn't really the the original YouTubers. It was Jay Z and Madonna and my company Vox and Media. Murdox, that's right. Yeah, um, the, yeah, that was coming out of the gate because the idea was at the time, like there was no sense that sort of um, amateur. You see uh, user-generated content, they would still call it like in the book, I talk a lot about how they had these different teams. This was like the torso and then there was the head, which was Robert's team. It was like, okay, we're going after like traditional media. And so, so much of YouTube's focus on their commercial side in their in their first 10 years, God, was this is not going to work for advertisers unless we're premium and premium only is going to be, we need like TV and network and record labels to come onto YouTube. And And Robert did accomplish that. You know, it was a bumpy ride, but like, and so that the part of his goal then was, oh, the we're gonna pay money to Madonna and Shaquille O'Neal to turn them into YouTubers. That didn't didn't work. And it became evident after a few years, like, oh, we actually have celebrities right here. There's just no one else knows them besides the rabid YouTube fans. Uh and the channels they did get me, you know, they gave Hank and John Green money and Crash Course and Cyber, like all these sort of a lot of these YouTube staples that are still around uh, were part of that program. Uh and then in 2015, if I right, they go into originals and try to do like their own house of cards, uh, a strategy that just officially died this year, but but certainly was went on the deathbed for it. Never, never really took off. They never had real enthusiasm for. Yeah, it. and there's, um, I mean, there could be a maybe not a whole book, but certainly a lot of to to uncover about the originals. But I, I brought it up in the context of watch time because my sense from people in the company was the originals, the YouTube originals, which were like. You know, starring the shows, starring their creators, uh, you know, scripted programming that was like Netflix with a YouTube flair, right? It was still like YouTube. It, it felt like YouTube kind of. Um, it, those did not perform as well in watch time. Like no one was watching as much. People were not watching Scare PewDiePie as much as they were watching regular PewDiePie. And so you have these competing interests often where like one part of YouTube wanted to promote originals. And then the other part that's like driven by you know, the goals of oh, we're going to like keep promoting watch time, they were in c- competing interests. So I've been going to these brand cast events. They're their big advertising event. I've seen mm-hmm. you with them a few times in New York. They're explicitly for, you know, they're right around the same time that advertisers come to New York to, to hear from the big TV networks. That's no accident. YouTube's have always been big deals. They make bigger every year in terms of the talent. And for a long time, the the theme of that was trying to convince advertisers, like we talked about, that they should be moving their money from TV to YouTube because that's what their audience was. It still hasn't worked as much as YouTube would like, but it's it's obviously working. They're, they're, they are bringing a lot of money. And at the same time, there was always a lot of discussion about here's a YouTube star that's going to break out of YouTube and make it in TV or movies. And it's a recurring thing. What was the the horrible uh, kid who went to uh, Viacom for a minute? Oh, the terrible high-pitched voice. Oh, Fred. Uh, Fred. Was it Fred? Yeah. <laughs> Awful. Uh, but, but a bunch of them. He's a delightful and, creator. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Maybe he's a nice person. I don't know. And, and 
And you, whenever you talk to a YouTube creator about whether they wanted to go on TV, they would say, yeah. no, my audience is here and that's who I yeah, love. Yeah. But they would all try yeah. to go to TV. Um, recently gave a, a YouTuber uh, an NBC late night show. That was supposed to be a big deal. Yeah. Unless I'm missing it, no one has really made that leap. But also, it doesn't seem like that leap matters anymore. Like, no one bothers asking that question. Uh, Issa Rae, uh, start off on YouTube. Sure. Uh, yeah, there are people who, who, who started on YouTube, but they, they, they didn't, you didn't, you didn't have massive YouTube successes than bringing that audience to TV. There was the, I talk about this in the book, there was the, there was the SNL model. The YouTube talked about it as the SNL model, which is we're going to, our YouTubers are going to springboard from, you know, like SNL stars went on to movies and TVs, like similar, like, oh, mm -hmm. from YouTube, you just. And then there was the Oprah model, which is like, you just stay right here and you like, you build your empire here. And I think YouTube clearly wants the Oprah. Do you think that that's like, you know, like Mr. Beast? I was thinking about Mr. Beast is like the biggest YouTuber in the world right now. I mean, I, my sense is Mr. Beast has no interest in making a Mr. Beast movie or a TV. Like he's very, he's barely even TV. doing TikTok. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's sort of an anomaly, but like. Yeah, he's a diehard YouTube person, but I think some of it is, you know, you mentioned Fred, which was the at one point the biggest YouTuber in the world, the, the squealy voice kid. He did make a, f a few movies with Nickelodeon, uh, came back to YouTube doing vlogs, says like, you know, his his rationale was I just didn't like being told what to do, didn't like the lights and the directors and the whole like to do, which is like YouTube is just, I can do it myself. I Justine is another example of like an old school YouTuber who's been on since day one is like, I don't, I get to write and be a producer and and, and director and have creative control, which is, I think, important for a lot of YouTubers. I do think you're right. There is that was a pipeline that the company, at least some people at the company, expected to happen that hasn't happened yet. And there's not like Lily saying is that that was not a right. successful talk show. Um, I mean, it could just be a, a gap in the sense that like they're not their focus now for the company, especially like Robert's departure. Like they're not trying to necessarily compete with the streaming wars or like get YouTubers on daytime TV, right? Their rearview mirror is TikTok. And so like they're like, we just need to keep creators happy on, on YouTube. There's two sides of the argument of, of you could say like, are enough people like having satisfying and successful media businesses on YouTube for sure? Is that, does there's still problems about, you know, creator burnout and like, what is it like to be a YouTube creator when this like ground is constantly shifting beneath your feet? I don't think that's going to change. Let's talk about TikTok for a second. So um, my kids don't have TikTok, but they watch it all the time because mm -hmm. they watch it on YouTube Shorts. So if anyone yeah. isn't spending time on this, it's just it's it's YouTube's version of TikTok. I it's YouTube's version of Reels. It's yep. just a place where people are up right now uploading TikToks and letting kids watch them. Would YouTube be happy if that's what YouTube shorts remains that it's just a sort of an 80% as good or 70% as good version of TikTok? Or is it a more of an existential problem? Facebook spends a ton of time describing TikTok as an existential problem. It is clearly trying to just basically turn itself into TikTok, particularly in Instagram. And they're quite vocal about it and they're not shamed. You don't hear that worry coming out of YouTube, but maybe that's mm -hmm. just not public. I think it's, I mean, in, in a similar way, you don't hear the worry about the impact of ad, Apple's um, decision to, to block ad targeting on iPhones coming out of YouTube, and, and, and but it's certainly there. They're just, I think, savvier than Facebook or, or at least made a st strategic decision not to talk about it publicly. So yes, I do think that, that TikTok is a real threat. It's a threat to both for eyeballs uh, and then for creators. 
I mean, YouTube is about to turn on monetization for YouTube Shorts, uh, and there's a there's Hank Green has talked about this. There's a sort of expectation that TikTok is so far is not doing the best way with their creator fund, uh, and YouTube has, despite its many years of problems, the book goes into like fairly stable now for if you're a established and and sizable creator, like a, a stable, reliable source of of income, right? Like AdSense functions make sense, like. They, the YouTube is a place where you make money, and that's what you talk to creators. And there might TikTok be there might great. be big changes like the apocalypse that you talk yeah, about, yeah, but yeah. still, there's still a sort of understood sense of how these things work. For sure, I also think that the other part of the business is looking at YouTube TV and both the the, uh, the product, the sixty five dollar a month um, over the top, which is growing decently, but uh, and but just YouTube's on TVs. Uh, and that's where TikTok is sort of trying to move in that category too. But I think that YouTube is making a lot of like that's where they're investing a lot of resources. You talk to people and they're they work in their ads team. It's like still TV is like the focus, right? They're mm-hmm. they're they're not the ads team isn't scrambling to to deal with the threat from TikTok. They are like trying to do this long game of moving television dollars from from the television market over to YouTube. It does seem, and I could be 100% wrong, but it does seem to me that YouTube, both because they've been working at it for a long time, but also just the product works better as a TV product than TikTok does certainly as the way TikTok exists now and, and maybe always will. There's something about the feedback loop and the infinite scroll that works better on your phone and YouTube works great on your phone too, but you can switch over from Game of Thrones to YouTube and it's all sort of content and it all sort of plays well on your screen. So they might do better there. You open up your your book and you bracket it with the Christchurch shootings, um, where I think everyone here remembers that, but that's where a, a crazed uh, man shot up mosques in New Zealand. And before he's live streamed it and before he did it, he shattered out PewDiePie, who at the time was the biggest star on YouTube. Um, and I did a I did a uh, an episode of our Land of the Giants series uh, on YouTube, and we used Christchurch as well. And I think for obvious reasons, right? It's a direct connection between horrible real world effects and this giant platform that didn't realize or wasn't aware of these consequences, or not aware enough of the consequences, or couldn't do anything about them. But I always feel a tiny bit uneasy, or maybe moderately uneasy about that mm-hmm. too, because. There's a counter argument that people usually won't say on on the record anymore, but say it is is we're holding up a mirror. We're not the cause of these problems. One, you're holding us responsible for everything, and you're not looking at all of the other inputs. But also, we're a mirror. We're not the cause of this stuff. And I re- and I go back and forth on this, and I'm wondering how you where you end up on that debate. Yeah, uh, I mean, someone I put that in the book. I think like someone told me that directly. Don't blame the mirror. Was a great quote. I almost wanted to present that as a title option, but uh, I mean, um, I, there's people I know who well, use it, who use that phrase, yeah. like almost like as a joke, like when you when you show them something terrible in their platform, like oh, we're just a mirror, but they, and they know that that's kind of a weak argument, but it also is an argument. Yeah, I think so. The, to, to the Christchurch, I mean, the the book has the Christchurch shooting in part because uh, you mentioned Claire Stapleton worked on the marketing team. Uh, I thought it was this really acute and, and traumatizing moment for the company for a couple of, a few different reasons. One is the PewDiePie is the world's biggest YouTuber at the point the company had spent a couple of years staying away from him, at least like officially, like not doing any type of engagement like they do with their their normal big stars. In part because if, if everyone remembers, he was involved in this scandal where he was testing the sort of limits of this gig economy site called Fiverr, paid for people to hold up a sign that said death to all Jews. 
you know, there's a really great YouTuber named Matt Pat that made a video about it that sort of explained why that that even PewDiePie's defense was, was satire. It's like, well, it doesn't work as satire in part because it didn't explain what the joke and it didn't like it, it brought in this anti-Semitism in this moment of early 2017 when like this sort of confusing moment in, in, in Trump and politics. And so this is I I, uh, um, I get that some of the argument of don't blame the mirror. You have like this invite this YouTuber and media influencer that you've had this commercial relationship with and been sharing uh, made millions of dollars off of who. Is uh, yeah, you've got the receipts in there. The PewDiePie made thirty-eight million, and they made thirty-two million, and probably more when you think about it. But yeah, Uh, at yeah, for certainly Um, uh, at at best, like not really doing responsible satire or not having like public conversation. There was no sort of like public reckoning in the sense Mm -hmm. that YouTube didn't come out and say like, oh well, let's think about like what what was what what was defensible about this video and why we make this like there's no transparency about that. Uh, and at worst, like sort of flirting with this very fascist um, underbelly uh, that had, uh, and and the the Christchurch report from the New Zealand government was like this shooter was inspired by YouTube, right? He was watch a lot of YouTube. He believed in the Great Replacement theory. There was uh, YouTube has changed, but there were a lot of videos available on YouTube pushing this theory that Muslim immigrants were a threat to um, Western society and and white people, and that was like took hold. On the internet and on YouTube, and and that was something that YouTube then grappled with. They changed their hate speech policy. YouTube is a dramatically different site uh, since since 2019. That's not a mirror, right? Like when when you go out and and you, YouTube since day one has never been a mirror, or it would be like anything, right? It would have porn, it would have copyright material, right? Um, it is an, an advertising a media company uh, that it makes decisions uh, that ref, that change have these dramatic consequences and, and Christchurch is a great example because after that YouTube looks very different than, than when it, what it looked like before. But do you feel like YouTube deserves the grief that they get periodically when something awful happens either directly on their site or adjacent to their site that they can be blamed for? Or do you think this is, it's like blaming, I don't know, uh, I'm going to get the metaphor wrong. Uh, I mean, Susan Wojcicki, who runs YouTube, has a version yeah. of this where she says, well, you know, people visit New York. Bad things happen in New York, but you wouldn't yeah. want to not go to New York. Um, that yeah. argument doesn't sound super strong to me, but I, I, I don't really yeah. know where I land. And I'm wondering if, yeah. if, if there you was have a, that, sim- that similar ambivalence that I do. Uh, I, I will. Um, there are many things that when you write a book, I learned you, you have to... to leave out unfortunately one of them was someone told me this they were like you know talking about how being the, the ceo of, of youtube is like running mcdonald's and then someone in the mcdonald's and the mission in san francisco like takes the crap on the table and it's mm-hmm. like you get blamed for this that metaphor doesn't entirely work but it like it's reflective of yes like their youtube is so massive and obviously like susan can't be responsible for all these decisions. But that is, I mean, the, the reason the last time I talked to her was on stage at the code conference and we went round and round. And I was saying, I think that this is a structural problem. doesn't matter whether you're a good person or a bad person running YouTube, that you've built this thing that anyone can upload stuff into that you guys structurally can't really moderate until the stuff's up there. So by default, you've built this giant um, surface. That's the tech people like to use that word. So of course, just the, the fact that you've built it and own it means that people are going to abuse it. And they were pretty naive. I mean, they, they built like the, not even that, but just a system then that, that everyone can monetize at, the, at one point, right? Like the early YouTube partner program after 2012 was another like, same year that they switched to watch time. They also like opened it up to the masses. 
in this like sort of self-governance, like we're going to trust trust people. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing a, a VP of engineering told me on the record, which was like, bef- you know, in 2018, YouTube started to do what they call borderline videos, which is like they're going to, if it's a borderline video, it doesn't break our rules, but it comes up to the line. We're not going to recommend it. Uh, mind you, like they don't, you know, when you're watching this on YouTube, it's not like there's a, a little uh, an alert that says like this video has been flagged as borderline, right? You have no idea. He's like, before then, we just assumed anything that was on YouTube was good enough to be recommended, uh, which is kind of mind-boggling now. So I, I, there was some naivete. I think it's just like a Google thing. There, they like had this very uh, rose-colored glasses about the world. You know, kids' site is a perfect like the kids' issue is a perfect example, right? Like 2017, there was just like bizarre, troubling, really weird kid stuff. I think. Um, you know, you can have arguments about the, the quality and, and like whether or not you kids, all kids programming should be like Sesame Street quality. Sure. But like the main thing there was that like a lot of people at YouTube were like, oh, my God, I, this is on our platform. This is like tremendously platform. Like this is the thing that we are not just promoting to the world, but like making billions of dollars from. Like, I think that was and certainly advertisers had that experience. Like, oh, this is what you're charging us the rate, same rates for TV for. Right, like they fixed that problem. Like uh, the brand safety problem doesn't really exist anymore, and and for for a variety of reasons. But but I still think they're they're pretty like naive about the what happens on the platform. If we tick off all the big web two o slash today big platforms, you can sort of easily identify what their problem is. Right, um, for Facebook, it's TikTok. For TikTok, it's the fact that they're basically tied to the to Chinese government and that makes their future really uncertain uh, Twitter is Elon Musk uh, what it, YouTube grows and grows and grows and is, I think what 20 plus billion dollars in revenue now oh uh, I think last year was 29 in ads okay there we go 29 so, and, and then and then however many uh, in just subs which is you know marginal but growing they are growing when they make missteps like original content, et cetera. It doesn't, they shrug it off. They can have big ad controversies that seems to shrug it off. What, what is the existential problem for, for YouTube to solve or worry about? My book, obviously. Yeah. Oh, just kidding. Um, uh, I mean, I think you could, one argument and I think is like the, in stagnation i guess i don't i don't know i mean that that's sort of like tiktok in some ways like youtube is like a tanker it doesn't move quickly and there are people on youtube that like to say like we don't move fast and break things as a stab at facebook in part because every decision they make has these huge ramifications for people that make money off the service i don't know there's a book there's a part in the book that someone an employee asked this to to susan uh a couple of years ago and her like very immediate response was regulation and that was at the time it was you know, European copyright rules was like the the biggest like you know I, someone told me like you don't under, understand how many meetings inside YouTube were devoted to this one copyright rule in, in Europe um, the sort of bifurcation of the internet right like that the YouTube's going to have to have different rules and uh, and restrictions on its ads in Europe uh, in India and in Russia like it's the only company the media company and American media company that's still operating in Russia. Um, I think that that's the biggest threat is like how they deal with, are they going to continue to operate in a country like India where the government is increasingly like putting more and more pressure on them and cracking down on critics? Like, um, yeah, I I think I'll just take Susan's answer and repeat it. I kind of think that's right. I think that's right. I I agree with Susan Wojcicki. And and I also, I also just uh, like one more point there. 
Yeah, uh, big, you know, government, as you've talked about, like in the U.S., hasn't really cracked down on big tech yet. Like maybe Congress will pass something mm-hmm. uh, while we're on this call, but like. I mean, we do have the DOJ suing. Or we do we have do various. Have the, we, 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 the DOJ is now suing well, Google. Yes, correct. But it's not break. As far as I know, like I can probably guarantee that's not going to result in, in YouTube being forced to uh, no. be broken up from Google. It's going to nick the ad uh, business. Yes. But the FTC brought action, the biggest action ever against YouTube in 2019 for violating children's privacy mm-hmm. laws on the internet. Substantially changed how YouTube works it's for kids. Substantially changed its business, I think. And and pro- I, there's an argument that made like the kids video, which was kind of this, they, YouTube didn't really touch it very much. They had the kids app, but everything else they like, they tried to ignore um, for regulatory reasons. And like, it, it just didn't mind the store. I think it be- become to be much more concerted effort around like work programming and quality and brand safe, like moderation, like much heavier hand on, on kids videos. And I think there's an argument that like that's had some uh, good impact on the, the quality and direction of, I can see uh, as yeah. a father disagreeing. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, yes, if you, if the way that your kids got onto YouTube was through YouTube kids, or YouTube kids programming, sure. But yeah, I don't think that's the way most kids use it. Um, no, I'm sure, but like, okay, look at look at Ryan Kaji, and this is like the world's most uh, richest YouTuber, right? The toy unboxing has been on since he was three. Like, mostly toy unboxing. You know, hey, wait, wait, and, just let's just pause for a second in case yeah, the, yeah. this is in case you have not seen this. This is literally yeah. a kid opening toys, opening bo- boxes. I mean, that's it's a, it's it, this is this is a longstanding. And very sure. popular genre Extremely of popular category. Content. Yeah. So Ryan Kaji um, is, he's built this, this, and Chris Williams, who used to work at uh, Maker, is his, like, part of his studio and has built this, you know, um, and, and there's Moonbug is another huge property, mostly of, like, uh, YouTube children's channels. But Ryan's rose to fame as a, as a, as a uh, toddler and um, uh, as a kid, as unboxing videos, he shifted into making science videos, like video games, but like also like some that are, you know, I would call them educational. Uh, and part of that is because, you know, he's had under scrutiny for his uh, like violating rules about um, commercial programming. Like he's, there's a complaint to the FTC. And part of it is that YouTube has like pushed their algorithm to like, oh, we're going to, you know, try to do things like get kids to go outside more often, like videos that promote those, like, like videos that promote learning. We're going to, you know, we're going to algorithmically promote them more. I mean, I, I'm looking at you, I see your skepticism and like, I, this is a very YouTube way of, of handling this. Like we're going to sort of try to program the, program these subjective traits into our algorithm because it's like we, it is both too big and we as a company like refuse to like handpick uh, programming. Yeah, yeah, I just keep coming back to like I think it's structural. I think you can you can yes. tweak the stuff all you want, but in, if the end you've made this thing that's widely available to everyone to use how they want, they're going to use it how they want, and you're going to end up owning the good and bad parts of that. Yeah, but but they ha- but they can and and have made choices that have uh, changed the way like the way YouTube works and the mm-hmm. way and and like Ryan Codges, I think is an interesting example. Like maybe sure, maybe he's he and his parents would have made different videos. Uh, regardless of what YouTube did. Uh, but I do think that like the decisions that, that the company made have steered him. And, and he also is like one of those YouTubers that like when he makes certain types of videos, people, a bunch of other people try to copy that, right? Yep. Like uh, that's the, you know, that's the thing about YouTube is like 
uh, it's always it's just people these droves of of creators and channels trying to copy the trend and figure out what's happening, which is just how like uh, I mean, it's, you're right to your point. That's like structural. That's how it's always worked and how it's always will work. I'm gonna give you the last word, Mark, because you wrote hundreds of pages, deeply reported stuff. There's great detail in there. What's the one nugget there that I didn't ask you about that people should know about or would be titillated by? What didn't you ask me? You, you covered a lot of expansive ground. You know, there was a great, I, I think it's really fascinating for readers to if you have, go back and, and recall the recent history of Google Plus and Google's fixation. This is their attempt to make a social network. Their attempt to make a social network. They had a, uh, at one point, a, a serious discussion about putting all of YouTube.com, probably the world's second, like, big, second biggest search engine and this valuable video property onto the tab, video tab of Google Plus. Uh, which I think showed just the extent sometimes where, where Google comes out, has like a heavy hand in YouTube and they're the, I, like the people who worked at YouTube at the time, uh, are still have like PTSD about, about Google plus. And, and I think was a distraction when, you know, all these different issues that we talked about were sort of fomenting. Uh, but then what was, I saw yesterday on my YouTube app that they've introduced this new feature for, I'm a paying subscriber immediate, um, for premium. And it's like, you can watch. Um, with Google Meet, which is their video conferencing like Zoom competitor. It's like, watch YouTube together with your friends and Google Meet. Uh, like, wow. I keep reading that, 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 that that's a thing people want to do is watch videos together but apart. And I'm sure there is a thing, but I don't. I haven't met that person who does that yet. Uh, well, well, some Google products manager probably has or at least <laughs> wants to imagine that. So anyway, that, that I think was uh, is a useful bit of of internet history that I think readers will enjoy. Mark Bergen, I miss you. I love reading your stuff over at Bloomberg. I love this book. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. Anyone who listens to this podcast should read it. It's a great history of YouTube, and really it's a, it's a history of the internet. You did a great job. Congrats. Thanks so much, Peter. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Mark Bergen. Excellent dude. Excellent reporter. Thanks again to Jelani and Travis. Also excellent dudes. They edit and produce this show weekly. Um, sometimes even when they're not feeling great. So I appreciate them. I appreciate our advertisers and I appreciate you guys. We will have a new episode of Recode Media for you next week.